Have you ever been in a situation where you're kind of surprised by who it is who speaks up and starts talking? And maybe at the same time, you're surprised by who it is who remains quiet and doesn't say anything. If you think about it, we've probably all been in a place like that, right? Maybe, maybe you're together and a child speaks up and notices what the adult in the room, who is always quick at the, with the word, doesn't notice at all. Maybe you're in school and you're in a class and there's this one classmate, he's always slacking off, he's never doing anything, but the teacher asks a question and he's the one with the response. And then the know-it-all, who always knows the answer to every question, is quiet. You know, this, this Sunday is an important Sunday. It's a special Sunday because we get to recognize, we get to ordain uh, Brian and Ethan and just recognize really what God has already made evident in their lives. And one of the things that we see that a leader does and a Christian leader does is he's able to give voice uh, to those who maybe don't seem like they have a voice, to equip them, to empower them, to be able to share their story of gospel truth and how the gospel has transformed their lives. And we'll see that this morning as we continue our empowered study through the gospel of Mark. We're going to be in Mark chapter 7. And as we're there, I want you to pay special attention to who it is who gets quiet, who it is who has the gumption to speak up, and who it is who's given a voice who didn't previously have one. Let's go ahead and check it out. We'll begin in uh, verses 1 through 23. Mark 7, 1 through 23. John Mark writes, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, The people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered into the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you having a hard time to understand? And he said, what comes out of the person is what defiles. For what within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within and they defile a person. All right, so the religious leaders, they show up again. And as we've gone through the Gospel of Mark, they've kind of disappeared for a little bit now. We haven't heard them for a while. They've grown, grown quiet. 
It's interesting how quiet they've become. But see, this is what happens when you have religious power brokers like this, because they're emphasizing their authority by lording it over those they lead and ostracizing those who are on the outcast, who, 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 who they deem less than. So they have a hard time when they see the last, the least, the lost, the poor, the foreigner, the widow, the orphan, given front stage uh, to the kingdom of God and what Jesus is doing. And so they've kind of retreated into the background. And remember the whole thing, the whole reason why they're having a hard time with Jesus is because they cannot control him. Because he's a maverick. Because they're saying this is what proper religion worship looks like. And Jesus just comes and turns it on his head and says, no, you're missing the whole point of it all. And so he's challenging everything they believe by what he does and by what he says. They can't control him. He won't fit into their nice little box. And so they're having a hard time. And so with this confrontation, the box that Jesus won't conform to, that he's not fitting in, is the washing of hands. Now, understand, this washing of hands, it was not a personal hygiene thing, okay? It was simply an external show. It was just to demonstrate, hey, we're good, we're holy, we're clean. Uh, and so this is the ritual that they did. And so for any good Jew, the way it often worked is when you would enter even a house, but definitely before you ate a meal, uh, you would wash your hands, but you would wash them in a very prescribed, elaborate format. It would go like this. You'd take a water basin, you'd hold your hand in the air, and you'd take the water and you'd drip it on your hand and allow the water to run down your hand, down your arm, off your elbow. All right? Then you take the water basin, you do the same thing for the other hand. It was very elaborate. No one would miss it. And that was the point. No one would miss it. It's not that your hands got really clean. It was just, hey, look, we're clean. We've done this religious tradition. We're good. So here comes Jesus' disciples. They're eating. They didn't pour the water down. They didn't do the whole thing, you know? And everyone's looking at them, and everyone knows they missed it. Everyone knows they didn't conform to the box of what religion ought to look like. And so the Pharisees, they call Jesus on it. They're looking for a way to trap him. They call him on it, and Jesus responds back. You know, oftentimes when Jesus responds, what we've seen so far is he responds to their questions with a question, right? This time's different. He doesn't just turn it back on them and make them think. No, it, it's getting more confrontational now. And so he responds very directly and very sharply. And he says, uh, you know what? Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. He did a good job talking about you guys because y'all are a bunch of hypocrites. You honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. You worship me in vain. Isaiah was dead on. And so, I mean, those are harsh words, right? He's calling them out. And the, the main word here that he's using is this word hypocrite. Okay, it literally means in the, in the Greek, actor, one who wears a mask. And that's what he's saying is true of these guys. You're putting a mask on. And the mask, when you put it on your face, oh, it's got a big smiley face like everything is good because the externals are good. And that was what was important to them, the externals. You got to look good on the outside. You got to seem like you got it all together, that everything is good, happy. But Jesus is saying, if you were to take that mask off, Man, underneath, if looks could kill, that's how you'd be looking at me. Because you don't care anything about worshiping me. You don't, you don't care anything about really 
anything else but the external and your power. And so he calls them out on this. And he's saying, you're just a bunch of hypocrites. You're just a bunch of actors. You're wearing masks. Now, it's interesting because then he kind of talks and shows where hypocrisy leads. I want you to see this. In verse 8, okay, verse 8, they leave the commands of God. Okay, now they're just ignoring the commands. Verse 9, they get to a point, they reject the commands of God. Verse 13, they void the word of God by their traditions. It is a dangerous thing to be a religious hypocrite because you place the the desires and the traditions of man over and above the desire and the word of God. And that's what the Pharisees are doing. They place the desires and traditions of men over and above the word of God. And there's this cycle that it leads. At first, you're just ignoring it. You're just walking away. Okay, I'm just, I'm going to pretend like God's word doesn't really say that. And I'm just going to live how I want to live. And then you reach a point where you're like, okay, I know God's word says this, but I'm just, I don't care. I'm rejecting that. I'm going to live as if that's not true because I want to live the way I want to live. And then he says, you reach a point where you're just voiding out the truth of God's word, even if you were to say it to other people. You voided it out. It's interesting. A lot of modern day Pharisees, one of their favorite verses to quote, God's word does not return void. And they rip it right out of context. You know where that's from? Isaiah 55. And you know what God is saying in Isaiah 55 when he says, my word will not return void? What he's saying is, whatever I say, any promise I make, you can count on it. That I always speak the truth. Anything I say will happen, will happen. You can count on it 100%. What that verse is not saying is, if you memorize a verse, if you tell this verse to a child, well, it will have the life-changing profitability. It will be applied. You'll act on it. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, when God speaks, you can always count on it. And what he's saying here is, Pharisees, you might be speaking Scripture, but you voided it out. You voided the life-changing profitability of the word because you've elevated your own traditions and you've put them over and above the word of God. So what you've done is you've caused people just to seek tradition and to think religion must look like this. And that's the whole point. They're imprinting religion on people instead of imprinting Jesus and God on people. And I fear that sometimes we have the same problem in our own churches that we imprint church on people. And here's the idea of what we think church ought to look like. And it must go like this. And you must have these prescribed order of things. When what we really need is Jesus imprinted on our lives. And so we go back to the scripture to check our heart for any hypocrisy. And Ethan and Brian, I mean, this is an important lesson for us as leaders, but it's important for all of us to check our hearts for hypocrisy. It's especially important for us because as we lead and as we proclaim the scriptures, if we're proclaiming traditions of men on equal ground or even above scripture, we had the ability to void out the life-changing profitability of God's word because we've elevated uh, traditions of men. So uh, I want to just walk through just a couple questions that we can ask, all of us can ask, uh, from this text Say, okay, is there any hypocrisy in my heart? And so the first question to ask, am I more interested in some kind of religious tradition than biblical teaching? 
Is, is there any tradition that I just really like and I really want that? And if I don't have that, well, it's not, it's not going to work. And that has become over and above sound biblical doctrine. If you do, you're at risk of being a hypocrite. Second question to ask, am I more concerned with the ministries of the church or the mission of the church? Are you more concerned with the ministries of the church or the mission of the church? See, the Pharisees, they're all interested in this ministry of hand washing. We got to make sure it's good. But sometimes today, we can be more concerned with ministries too. Now, I hope we fellowship, lock arms, make disciples together here at Central for a long time. But if you ever have to leave, if God ever moves you on to some other place, I really hope that the questions you're asking are not, well, how do I like the children's ministry? Is the youth ministry fun and exciting? How do I like the worship ministry? Is the music to my preference? Is there women's ministry and men's ministry that I like and I can fit in and make friends? No, I really hope that the question that you're asking is, is this a disciple-making church? Is it concerned with the mission that Jesus gave his church to be about? Are, are we focused on sound biblical doctrine? Does this church have that? When we focus on ministries over mission, you're in danger of being a hypocrite. Lastly, I'm sorry, two more. Do I care more about outward ceremony or the heart commitment? Do you care more about outward ceremony or the heart commitment? Is it just about performance? Is it just about talent and skill and power? Or is it about the heart commitment? Is, does the testimony matter over and above any, any skill, any talent, any ability, any, any show, any performance? Is it about the heart? Real relationship, that's what Jesus is about real relationship. And if we come for a show or for a performance and we don't care and hey, well, you know what? We're just going to look by that. We've missed it. Okay. We've missed it. We're in danger of being a hypocrite. Lastly, am I more diligent in my appearance before men than my approval before God? Am I more diligent in my appearance before men than my approval before God? Are you putting on a mask? trying to make it look like, hey, I got everything together, life is good, you know, God's really blessed me? Or are you genuine, authentic, sometimes vulnerable, and saying, here's my hurts, here's my pains, here's, here's my struggles? You know, that's what happens in a good family, right? In a good family, you share your weaknesses, you share your hurts, you share your struggles, you share your pains, you share your fears, you share your hopes, you share your dreams, you share your successes, in church, well, we're just a good family when we're at our best. And so we come together and we share, hey, <laughs> with authenticity and vulnerability, here's, here's, here's where it hurts. Here's where it's hard. Here's what I'm hopeful. Here's what I'm dreaming for. It's all that. But if it's more about, hey, everyone's just got to think I've got it together. And you're more concerned about your appearance before man than you are getting down on your knees in a, in a prayerful relationship with, with Jesus, understanding his word, studying the scriptures, and obediently living it out by investing in people and making disciples. Well, then you're in danger of being a hypocrite. Now, if you look at externals, you'll find hypocrisy in all of us because none of us live the Christian life perfectly. But God's looking at the heart. What is the general character of your heart? And so he, then he elaborates on that. It's from within that a person is defiled. It, it will manifest itself in all these ugly behaviors, and you can put on a mask for a while, but sooner or later it comes out. It's from within, and God is focused on the internals. 
The Pharisees are focused on the externals, and so Jesus is calling them on the carpet. He's having a real hard time with how they are leading, and he's, he's letting them know about it. So then comes this great scene where Jesus, he kind of demonstrates all this, okay? He puts it in to practice just kind of real life for us. I want you to see this. Mark 7, 24 through 37. Mark 7, 24 to 37 says, from there, Jesus arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the little children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went throughout Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hands on him, and taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue, and looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Apaphtha, that is, be opened, and his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly, and Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So, Jesus departs for the northern region of Galilee. He gets there. A woman shows up who has a daughter who's at home with an evil spirit. And things get interesting real fast because Jesus, she comes and Jesus, he says to her, uh, she's wanting a healing for her daughter. And he says, hey, should I take what is given to children and just feed it to the dogs? And so we're left with this point. Okay, what is Jesus getting at? What does he mean? And so there's all kinds of interpretations. Some have said, hey, look, there's this priority. It's first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. The gospel is proclaimed first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. And Paul affirms that. That's what Paul says in Romans. You see that uh, throughout Scripture. You see that in the Gospels. But the only issue with that is Jesus has already interacted with Gentiles at this point. He's already interacted with the Samaritan woman. He's already in, interacted with the centurion. It seems weird that all of a sudden he'd shift gears here toward this lady. And then, so some have said, well, maybe Jesus is testing her, just making sure her faith is legitimate. Okay. And she responds and she proves herself, oh, Jesus, you know, I'll, I'll come, I'll, I'll come begging and panting like a dog. If I can just have some of the crumbs that fall from the table. And so she demonstrates uh, that, hey, she understands the power of Jesus' bread even better than the disciples did the previous chapter. That she gets the power of it all, and, and Jesus then grants her request. The only thing with that is, why would Jesus test her by insinuating that she was a dog? I mean, it's not 
polite in our culture. It wasn't polite in that culture either. I don't think there's ever been a culture where, like, you know, you call someone a dog, and that's like, okay, that's cool. You know, we're good with that. No. And so it seems odd. So what's Jesus doing? Well, let's step back for a moment, okay? This woman comes, and she's desperate, right? She's a desperate woman. Here's her little girl. She's got an evil spirit. She doesn't know what's going on. There's nothing she can do. She's tried everything probably at this point. She can't help the girl. She comes, and she's not a Jew. Mark, he makes this point very, very strongly. He repeats himself, really. She's a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. Syrophoenicians, they were considered to be wealthy and godless. They'd oppress the Jews the, uh, their ancestors had. And so, you know, G- Jews were already prejudiced against Gentiles, but Syrophoenicians, I mean, they're the bottom of the barrel. And she doesn't have anything. That's what she is. She's not a Jew. She's not a disciple. She doesn't have any standing that would make her worthy of Jesus doing a miracle. She doesn't have anything to offer. There's nothing she can give Jesus. She's desperate. She has nothing, and she's seemingly asking for everything. And I think Jesus loves that kind of faith, because so oftentimes we have a hard time with that kind of faith, because we want to do something. We want to earn it somehow. I will do this for you. If you do this, I will do this. I want to earn it. This woman knows in her desperation, I have nothing. And she's asking for everything. And so I think Jesus is smiling. You know, if you will allow Jesus to smile, I think this passage makes a lot more sense. One of the things we've seen, I hope you've seen throughout Mark, is just how winsome Jesus is, how magnetic Jesus is, how joyous Jesus is, how the people just flock to him. The masses can't get enough of him. They're always coming close. And if you've met anyone who has that kind of magnetism about them, you know they smile. You know there's a joy about them. And Jesus, one of the fruit, fruit, part of the fruit of the Spirit is joy, complete, perfect joy. And so I think he's smiling here because here's this woman who's demonstrating such faith. And so I think he engages in just a little bit of satirical banter. Okay, Matthew's gospel, you know, he gives us a lot more detail than Mark. And Matthew's gospel actually tells us that when the woman came and first asked Jesus, that the disciples are telling Jesus, Jesus, can you just send her away? Can we just be done with this woman? We don't need to engage a woman like this. And so I think Jesus, hearing that, already knowing the purity in this woman's heart and knowing her faith, looks at her and smiles. And If I can put the conversation in modern terms, I think it would look something like this. Hey, woman, don't you know that God prefers Jews? Just kind of smiling, you know, a little satirical band. And I think she gets it and she volleys back. Oh, but I'll be happy just to take the leftovers. He might prefer Jews, but any leftovers he got for us Gentiles, I'll go ahead and take it. I'll receive that. And then Matthew tells us, Luke does, or uh, Mark doesn't make mention, but Luke, or Ma- Matthew tells us that then Jesus says, woman, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. Don't you know he has a smile on his face? Don't you know he's excited? God loves to give good gifts to his children. And so I think there's a smile on his, oh, great faith. Now Mark, he doesn't give us those details. 
And he doesn't give us those details for a reason, because the point that Mark is making is vastly different than the point that Matthew is making from this passage. Okay, Mark is letting that tension just sit. He's okay with that tension of how Jesus responds seemingly sharply, even rudely, to her. Why? Because he's connecting it back to the previous story. Right? When the Pharisees come, how does Jesus respond to them? He says, you hypocrites. Man, Isaiah was right about you. You worship me with your lips. Your, far, your hearts are far from me. And so what do they do? They get quiet. They back away. And then you had this contrast now with this woman who has no standing. She's not a Jew. She's a Gentile. Even worse, a Syrophoenician. She comes with this desperate plea. She's not accusing Jesus. She's just saying, I have nothing. Can you help? And Jesus gives a sharp but satirical remark with a smile on his face. And she doesn't back away. She persists in faith. The purity of her heart, the humility of her character is on display for all. And I I believe that's Mark's point. That humility is a key requirement for discipleship. Humility is a key requirement for discipleship. And then comes the next scene. The deaf mute man. Now, I was reading this week about the deaf community and how ostracized they have been historically. It really wrecked me. I I didn't know all this. Did you know that Aristotle said that the deaf man is a barbarian and is not worthy of education? In the Dark Ages, the deaf were committed to asylums and considered demonically possessed. In the Middle Ages, the church said, well, since they cannot hear the word of God, they cannot be saved. And since They're not saved. They're not fit to join in church gatherings. It was not until 1960 that American Sign Language was allowed into our public schools. So this is a historically ostracized community. At this time, it was commonplace and it it was perfectly acceptable that if you had a deaf child, that you could just leave them outside to be eaten by jackals, and if they somehow survived, well, they would basically have to fend for themselves. Because most families, they did not want a deaf child. And so they had no culture, they had no family, they had no people, they could not worship, they're considered unclean because of either their sin or the sin of their parents. That was the oldie moldy theology back then. And so here's this man. It's speculated that perhaps they just kind of drug him and thrust him in front of Jesus based on Jesus' reaction to him. And you know, deaf people oftentimes, uh, they're the last really to know what's going on. They're last to hear because someone has to sign it for them. And so this man, he, he's being thrust in front of this great crowd that's around Jesus, thrust right in front of Jesus. He probably has no idea what's going on. I mean, can you imagine the commotion? Crowds of people surrounding him, and then they see this deaf mute man, and they growl, oh, this is a tough miracle. Let's see if Jesus can do this one. And they throw him right in there. He doesn't know what's going on. Is he going to be beaten or worse? What's happening here? And then do you see what Jesus does? I was, I was reading this week about a deaf man who preached this sermon, and one of the things he said was that Jesus does 11 things in this section. Nine of those things he does without speaking a word. Why? He's communicating to the man on his level, on his terms. 
And so the first thing Jesus does is he takes the man and he leads him away to a private place, right? Let's just get away from the commotion. I want you to see what's going on here. I'm going to meet you on your terms, right at your level so that you don't miss any of this. And you imagine in leading him away that he's touching him, that he's looking at him. This man who's been overlooked, this man who's been considered untouchable for his whole life, and Jesus is touching him. He's looking at him. And then Jesus, as he's looking at him, he takes his fingers and he puts them in his ears. He spits on the ground and then he touches the man's tongue. These are the two wounded, broken parts of the man's body. He's communicating to the man what he's going to do. And then he looks up to heaven. And don't you imagine that as Jesus looks up, that the man too would have looked up? What's he looking at up there? What's going on? What's about to happen? The confusion, the wonder, the amazement, everything that's going on. And Jesus just sighs. And you know, the man could see that. Something's about to happen here. And then Jesus says, be opened. And the man could hear. He could speak fluently, plainly. And Jesus does something interesting, doesn't he? He goes back to the crowd and he tells the crowd, you don't tell anyone about this. You know what I think Jesus is doing? I think he's given this man the dignity to tell his own story. He's never been able to tell his story his whole life. You know, if, if anyone would ever speak up for him, that's what had to happen. Someone had to speak up for him. He's never been able to tell his story. And Jesus is saying, y'all be quiet. Let him tell the story. Well, they never seen anything like this. And so they're, they're talking, they're sharing it. And Jesus is zealous. Hey, don't say anything. And you can't hold them back because they haven't seen anything. Jesus, you do all things well. And what you need to know today is he continues to do all things well. Jesus always does all things well. And so he wants to reach into your life and he wants to touch those places in your life that are wounded, that are broken, that you'd rather just keep hidden behind a mask and, you know, and just kind of play a game. Ah, no, I don't want to go there. Jesus reaches in, he touches those wounded and broken places, and he lifts up your head to look up to heaven so that you're not looking down at your shame and your guilt any longer, but you behold the glory and the joy of the Lord. And then he gives you voice to tell your story of how the gospel has impacted your life, of how God is working in and through your life. He gives you voice. You know, to do this for this man, he did get him away privately. If Jesus was about himself, you know he would have done it in front of the crowd, right? I mean, that would have been quite a scene, just a, hey, boom, he could have healed however he wanted. He did it in private because he cared more about the man than he did about the crowd. And that's a lesson. Ethan Bryan, for us as leaders, it's, it's very important. We care more about people than publicity. We prefer people to publicity. It's what Jesus always does. He always prefers people. And so he gives voice to the last, the least, the lost, the poor, the foreigner, the widow, the orphan. He gives them voice so they can tell their story of how Jesus has impacted them. The religious leaders, they get quiet because they don't want them to be talking. They want to be the ones with the power. They want to be the ones telling the stories. 
They want to be the ones setting the agenda, setting the traditions. Maybe you're looking in the mirror this morning and thinking, I don't know that I have a story to tell. Jesus wants to give you voice. He wants to touch those broken, wounded places in your life. He wants to lift up your head toward heaven. You can see what he's done for you on the cross. He wants to give you voice.